happy, hoping for some happier sermons in the future, okay? Uh, I can't guarantee. I think next week, just because of the week it falls on, will be kind of joyous, okay? Uh, so we'll see about that. A couple announcements as we get started. Uh, you will notice we have uh, some announcement cards that we are now rocking. Uh, we have taken away the bulletins for a while and have been receiving hate mail. We're the bulletins. We can't memorize all the announcements, what it gives us at the end of service, okay? Uh, so you've got these here. Um, also, the invite cards that Burgundy talked about, uh, kind of the challenge is take five. Try to get five out. They're organized in such a way that you can make it into a postcard, okay? So you can write a personal note. You can mail it, those kind of things. So if there's someone you've been thinking about, Easter is uh, the Sunday out of the 52 of the year where people are most likely to say yes uh, to an invite for a church. If you've been here at the church for a while, you know that we've grown a little bit, okay? First service started at like four or five people, and now we're at about 20 people every week. This service started much smaller than this and has grown, and all the growth happens with word of mouth, okay? With invitations, with friends and neighbors and family members. We don't advertise. We don't have billboards, commercials. I've been trying to get the board to give me a commercial, okay? I think I have the face and personality to really make it work, but they turn it down every time, so for now... Uh, we're asking, just invite, invite, invite. Let's see uh, what we can get. Also, just quick announcement. I'll email this out this week. Easter next week is going to be packed, okay? It's going to be a very, very full house. So two things I would ask of you, my remnant, okay, <laughs> who are here on Palm Sunday. Get here early if you can, <coughs> like 1030 early maybe. Um, I can tell you in the past, Easter, Easter's always a packed Sunday. We have a lot of visitors uh, last year, we had about 25 visitors who were here before anybody else. So it was 25 people in the sanctuary who didn't know each other, and we didn't know any of them. And then around 1130, our people started showing up, right, for service. So out of any Sunday, that's, if we could get here early, and then like Burgundy said, I think last week, if we could sit up front, uh, all that would be great. We'll have a big house. It'll be a great weekend. Um, and so get your friends, get your family, get them over here, uh, and we'll have fun celebrating Easter together next week. But for today, we're finishing Lamentations. Today's a special day. Uh, it's the end of Lent, the season of Lent. Today's the last day of Lent. And it's also the first day of Holy Week, uh, which is what Christians use to refer to the last week of Jesus' life, the week leading up to his death and resurrection. Now, for Christians, this week has always been celebrated, okay, since the very beginning, Holy Week, starting on Palm Sunday. That's what today is called, Palm Sunday, up until Easter Sunday, which is a week from now. And since the very early church, there's been this thing inside of Christians that's, that said, this week is special. This is the week the world changed. I mean, this is the week that an earthquake happened, and we're still feeling the tremors of it, right? This was the week that everything got flipped upside down. And so Christians throughout history have taken this week and really tried to dig in and really tried to think about Christ and think about who they are, who they're called to be, and how they can be faithful followers of Christ. Um, so we've been walking through Lamentations as our guide through Lent, which is a season of preparation for Easter, a season of repentance and soul-searching. And then we'll finish off the book this morning. And I think it's an excellent way to finish Lent and start Holy Week as we look in Lamentations 5. You'll remember real quick, Lamentations is a series of poems written about the destruction of Jerusalem in the 6th century. Very graphic, very painful, very depressing poems expressing the suffering uh, that God's people have been through because of the destruction of the Babylonians uh, in Jerusalem. So they write this series of poems. We're in chapter 5. Um, a lament, again, is a complaint. It's a protest against God. We have, uh, in the church, kind of screened out that kind of language. Um, biblically, there are two types of worship. <coughs> praise and lament. Um, 
That's why the Psalter has, the, the book of Psalms has so many laments in them. It's considered worship uh, to the Hebrews and to the early Christians. Complaining to God is a way of worshiping him. We've kind of screened out all of that, and so we only have praise, right? Which, again, we've talked about creates problems when we need to lament, and, and we're supposed to lament, those kind of things. So Lamentations 5 is where we'll be. We have it recorded, so we'll listen to it in a minute. Um, like usual, you feel free to read along or to just listen uh, to Lamentations 5. A um, couple things to notice as we read Lamentations 5. This is uh, the last poem of the book. It's a speaker on behalf of the community, okay? And it's a prayer to God. It's the longest kind of extended prayer straight to God. So after all of this has happened, the community finally decides to make one last address to God. And that's the poem that we call Lamentations 5. So here it is, as recorded by FC Cube Studios. <laughs> Of my own grave, I can hear all the voices say, Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. We have become orphans, fatherless. Our mothers are like widows. We must pay for the water we drink. The wood we get must be bought. Our pursuers are at our necks. We are weary. We are given no rest. We have given the hand to Egypt and to Assyria to get bread enough. Our fathers sinned and are no more, and we bear their iniquities. Slaves rule over us. There is none to deliver us from their hand. We get our bread at the peril of our lives because of the sword in the wilderness. Our skin is hot as an oven, with the burning heat of famine. Women are raped in Zion, young women in the towns of Judah. Princes are hung up by their hands. No respect is shown to the elders. Young men are compelled to grind at the mill, and boys stagger under loads of wood. city gate, the young men with their music. The joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned into mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. For this our heart has become sick. For these things our eyes have grown dim. For Mount Zion, which lies desolate, jackals prowl over Cry out to
Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old. Unless you have utterly rejected us, and you remain exceedingly angry with us. This is Lamentations chapter 5, very similar to what we've seen in earlier chapters of Lamentations, chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. A couple quick notes here. You remember we have an acrostic poem going on in Lamentations, so the first chapter was A, B, C, and the second chapter was the same, and the third chapter we went to a triple acrostic, A, 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 B, 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 C, 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 the fourth chapter we went back to a single A, B, C, and the fifth chapter we have no acrostic. And this has caused some to wonder, were these five poems that were brought together at some point? But there's such a thematic continuity between them. We think they were combined and composed to be together. Um, This is almost chapter five, like the final breath. They've said everything that they can say. And it's led them all to one final prayer to the Lord. And they pray it, and it's done. At the beginning they say, remember. This is the first time we see this imperative, remember. We've seen Lady Zion called out. We've seen the city called out. Look at us. See us. Pay attention. But now they say, remember. Look at our pain. Remember our past relationship. Remember the covenant you made with us. Remember the commitment you have to us. The hope throughout all of this is that if they would cause a big enough scene, right, God might relent. God might turn around. He might ease their suffering, ease their pain. It reminds me of the story in Exodus where the Israelites are in slavery uh, to the Egyptians. And there's that turning point in the story when it says God heard their cries. And then, boom, the plan set to free them. Israel's saying, hear our cries, remember it, and be called to action. And then it goes into this lament, this complaint. All these horrible things have been happening, right? All of our inheritance has been gone. We can't even get food, okay? Our skin is falling off. Our women are being raped. Our young boys can't do the work that they need to do to stay surviving. It's, it's total destruction. It's total suffering. It's total chaos. In verse 19, in a really important verse, it says, But to you, O Lord... You reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Now, something interesting that's happening here in Lamentations, that uh, it's happening throughout Lamentations, but I've saved it for this week, is in the ancient Near East, okay? So this is 6th century when it's written. Most people thought of their gods as localized gods, as tribal gods, which means um, a people group would have their god, or a certain portion of land would have a god, right? And so when there would be a battle or a war, and one group would beat the other group, the, the ancient people often thought that as that God defeating the other God. Does that make sense? And so either this God didn't exist or this God's just lower on the totem pole, okay, of the Godhead. Um, what's interesting to historians here is that Israel gets destroyed. I mean, completely taken out. And they still think their God's in charge of everything. I mean, this is unheard of in the ancient world. Normally you say, well, I guess our God wasn't strong enough. I guess our God maybe wasn't there for us, didn't provide for us. We saw this in the book of Daniel, when Daniel's taken away, the temple's looted, but Daniel's still worshiping Yahweh in a foreign land. Still saying, they're, they're busting out these views of God that say he's, he's just committed to one tribe or one land. And they're saying, even our destruction here is somehow in the part of the sovereign plan. 
He's the one Lord of all of creation. He says, you reign. And it's because he's still in control and he still reigns. So they say, so why are you forgetting us? When are you going to end this? When are you going to come back to our aid? When will you reveal your steadfast love for us? And then so haunting, Lamentations 5, verse 22. It ends with this conditional sentence with no answer. Unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. And with that, they're done lamenting. The book ends very open-ended. Who knows what's going to happen next? There's this real place of suffering, this real cry out to the Lord. Now, we've been working through lamentations, and, and mainly what we've been doing so far is talking about how you and I can learn how to lament, right? We've screened out the art of lamenting, of complaining, of voicing our confusions and our doubts and our angers, and, and we kind of thought that maybe made us unfaithful Christians. And in fact, there's probably a place for that in our Christian life. Um, I think a couple things we've seen throughout Lamentations, uh, things that we can learn. Um, the first one is how to voice our own pain, right? So Christians, I think, can read Lamentations as insiders. Because sometimes we feel the pain that Lady Zion has felt. Sometimes we're in these dark places where we think God has abandoned us. And we need to voice it. And we need to deal with it. And we need to let God engage us in those areas of pain and confusion and doubt and anger. You could also read Lamentations as an outsider. So as someone, maybe the passerby, who walks by Lady Zion but doesn't help her. And we've talked about how Lamentations maybe teaches us how we can help people who are suffering. How we can suffer with people. The narrator, if you remember, the narrator starts out in chapter 1 as this kind of uh, cold, observational journalist. And then by chapter 2 he breaks. And he's crying with Lady Zion. And we've seen that's, that's kind of how Christians are called to be. We're called to suffer with the world and to suffer for the world and to see where things are going wrong and to experience it with people. There's another way I think we can read Lamentations that I haven't mentioned. You and I could read Lamentations as an enemy, as the nations that have destroyed Israel. What if perhaps things that we've done have caused people to lament like this? What if actions that we've committed have caused people to have to cry out to the Lord in this way. And we need to repent. And we need to try to seek reconciliation. Even corporately, you can take it farther, right? What, maybe what has our nation, what has our Western civilization done? What, maybe what things have happened where we've put people in places of lament, where they're crying out and hopeless and destroyed and in despair. There are all these ways, I think, that lamentations can help us as Christians more faithfully follow Jesus. This morning I want to focus on one in particular, um, which is the start of this Holy Week that we're starting on. Holy Week, the goal of Holy Week for Christians has always been to think about Jesus and to remember Jesus and to really dig in during this week and remember what he was going through, remember what was happening, experience and participate and pay attention to the week that changed everything. And I think Lamentations can help us do that. I think Lamentations can help us dig in to Jesus and help us dig into what was going on um, in this Holy Week. So let me refresh your memory again on Holy Week if you're not familiar with Holy Week. Holy Week, again, is the week before Christ dies, leading up to his death and resurrection. It starts on Palm Sunday, which is today. You've probably been in a church at some point in your life where there are little children with palm branches, right? And it was all fun and those kind of things. Um, Traditionally, those palm branches are then burned and used as ashes for next year's Ash Wednesday when Lent starts. (coughs) Um, so usually those ashes are last year's palm branches. So you have Palm Sunday. You remember Palm Sunday? Jesus is riding into Jerusalem. 
He's showing up to the capital city, and everyone is excited, right? He's signing Bibles. He's kissing babies. They're laying out the red carpet for him. We read it in our scripture reading. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He's got the crowds on his side. He's showing up to Jerusalem. They're expecting the world to change. But Jesus is going to change the world in a way they're not expecting. Even his entrance kind of shows this. The way the gospel writers write the, the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday is kind of a subversion of how an emperor would normally enter a city with a lot of fanfare and swords and helmets and all kinds of things. Jesus rides in on a donkey. Jesus is not a king like Caesar's a king or like Putin is a king or like Obama is a king. He's a much different kind of king. And the people are going to figure this out quickly. But they don't figure it out at this point, right? They're cheering. They're all on board. So that's Palm Sunday. Then you have Holy Monday. Holy Monday is when we think about and remember the fact that after Jesus went to Jerusalem, he went and caused quite a ruckus at the temple. Jesus, when he first gets to Jerusalem, goes to the temple, the place where God's people worshipped, and he turns over some tables, and he pronounces judgment on it. He says, this is going to be destroyed by God himself if there's not huge repentance on the national level. And now, historically, there's an interesting question to ask, which is this. Did Jesus know he was going to die in Jerusalem? Jesus knew he was going to die, right? He predicted his death and resurrection. The question is, did he know it was going to be this trip to Jerusalem, right? Or maybe was he expecting maybe in a couple years, maybe in Jerusalem he was going to die? If he had an airplane back then, right? Is he buying a one-way ticket because he knows he's not coming back? Or does he get there and things go wrong? It's an interesting question. Regardless, once he does what he does in the temple, it's probably a done deal. His fate's probably sealed as soon as he goes into the temple and attacks the Jewish leaders. Um, it, it offended them on a level that's hard for us to grasp, I think. I'll try, okay, with an illustration. Imagine that America has been invaded and is being occupied. Like the Israelites were being occupied by the Romans. Who came in, you ask? The Australians. It's always the people you least expect. <laughs> Just a piece of advice, kangaroos can't jump backwards. That's nothing to do with the Bible, but one day you'll thank me for that. Okay? So the Australians have come in, they have invaded America, okay? And what we want is, is this king figure, right? This leader who's going to rally up the troops, get everyone together, and then take our country back, all right? Kick those Australians out. And there are rumors floating around. That there's this handsome bearded man in Sugarland. He might be the one who's going to free us. And for a few years, he preaches and teaches and gathers some momentum, starts a blog and a Twitter. <laughs> and then eventually he says, hey guys, let's go to Washington, D.C. And everyone's like, oh, okay, we're going to Washington, D.C. And there's a slow but steady march to Washington, D.C. as the support builds and builds, and as he's going into the city, they're laying out the red carpets. This, I mean, it's huge. Anticipation has built and built and built. And then when he gets to Washington D.C., instead of issuing the rally cry, "Let's get the Australians," he says, "This building's going to be destroyed. This is what was corrupt. We're just as bad as the Romans are." What do you think would happen to all those people who were supporting me? <laughs> A couple of days earlier. Yeah, they'd say, let's silence you now, right? You've become the problem. You're coming after us. We're invaded. We're being occupied. This is how the Jews felt about Jesus, right? They wanted this king to come in and defeat the Romans. Jesus comes in at Passover, this time where all of Israel is there. It's this huge kind of crowd. If ever there's going to be a riot, it would be then. The Romans would bring in extra security. 
All Jesus had to do was say the word. And he would have had hundreds and hundreds, thousands and thousands of Jews willing to die for him to fight the Romans. It had been done before, Judas Maccabee. I don't know if any of you have seen Jesus Christ Superstore. This is the scene I have in my mind, right? Where he goes and, and the zealot's saying, just with one word and you could get all of them, right? Fired up. And he goes, but instead of rallying the cry against Rome, he says, y'all are just as bad. Jesus says, I am a king. I am going to free my people, but not from Rome, from sin and from death and from Satan itself, which has even infected God's own people, the temple. So on Holy Monday, Jesus caused a ruckus at the temple. This probably seals his fate. He's probably not going to leave Jerusalem historically once he does this. Then you move into Holy Tuesday. Holy Tuesday, from sunup to sundown, is full of debates. After the temple action, everybody wants to talk to Jesus. He's confronted by the Pharisees, by the Sadducees. He's in all sorts of controversies. They're asking questions about taxes. They're asking questions about the resurrection. They're doing everything they can to trap him, to find a way to arrest him, to get him silenced. I mean, it is an exhausting day for Jesus. He's telling parables. He's doing teachings. I mean, this is just a packed day of controversy for Jesus on Holy Tuesday. And then we move into Wednesday. Now, I didn't know this actually till this week. Wednesday is historically called Spy Wednesday, which is kind of cool. Spy Wednesday, because this is the day that Judas agreed to betray Jesus. Again, there's this question of what exactly was going on in Judas's mind historically when he betrays Jesus. Um, some have suggested that Judas does this not because he wants Jesus to die, but because he wants to force his hand into fighting. Right? They get to Jerusalem, Jesus seems like he's not going to issue this rally cry. So he's like, well, well, if I bring the enemy to him, maybe then it's go time. Right? I'm in Washington, D.C. I'm not really doing what people have expected me to do so far. So, like, well, maybe if we force him into it, then it'll be like, let's get him. This is over. I'm done with it. Let's fight him. It makes sense because in the garden, do you remember this? It seems like some of the disciples thought they were going to fight. They show up to arrest Jesus after this night of prayer. And Peter, bless his heart, <laughs> takes out a sword and cuts the guy's ear off. And Jesus is so mad at him. He says, have you not heard anything that I've taught you this whole freaking time? What are you doing, Peter? He picks up the guy's ear and puts it back on, which has got to be the strangest night in that guy's life. <laughs> I mean, I can even imagine going home, talking to the wife, okay? How is work? Well, we're going to kill this guy. One of his friends coughed my ear. He put it back on. I need some space. I don't, I don't really know what to think at this point, okay? He heals the guy's ear. He's... He's arrested. So, so Spy Wednesday, Judas agrees to betray Jesus. And then it kind of makes sense in the narrative as well. Judas seems to regret this. In a way, he did it before he betrayed Jesus. Almost like, I didn't think he was going to do that. I didn't think he'd actually go into custody. I didn't think he'd actually be arrested. Remember, Jesus tells Peter, look, I could call down legions of angels if I wanted to. If the kingdom came through bombs and guns and swords, the kingdom would be coming right now. But the kingdom comes to crosses. He says, don't, your stupid little sword over here, Peter, is nothing to me. I could snap my fingers and we could zap all of these people. That's not how it works. Spy Wednesday. And then Monday, Thursday. Often in churches, you don't have services for Holy Monday or Tuesday or Spy Wednesday, but you have a Monday, Thursday service. And this is um, in remembrance of Jesus' Last Supper with the disciples. So they're at Passover and Jesus has this Passover meal with the disciples. But he says something different, right? He says, the way we normally think of Passover as celebrating the exodus, the freedom we got from Egypt, now we're going to think about the Passover as a freedom that I gave you, my body for you, my blood for you. And I'm not going to free you from the Romans, 
I'm going to free you from sin and death and Satan himself. And Christians say somehow his body was broken for us and somehow his blood was poured out for us and that's Monday, Thursday. And then we have Good Friday, Good Friday, the day that Jesus died. We have a Good Friday service here at the church. Let me urge you to come to this. I think it's an important part of the Christian year. It's always a special service. Good Friday, 6 o'clock. Remember and celebrate Jesus' death. And then you've got Holy Saturday. And this, I think, is the most ignored of the Holy Week. Think about this. What is Jesus doing between his crucifixion and his resurrection? What are the disciples doing between his crucifixion crucifixion and his resurrection? What is the world going through when God is dead for a day? What is happening? We normally think of Jesus' death as like the first day, right? And soon after the resurrection and life. In one sense, though, Jesus' death is the last day. It's where all the hopes of the world have come to die. And the disciples go through this long period of time where they have no idea what just happened. All of their hopes have been crushed. All of their dreams have been crushed. Again, larger on a theological scale, God has shown up to bring his kingdom, and he's been killed. All hope is lost. Lamentations is, in a sense, a Holy Saturday text. It's this text between periods. Lamentations 5 ends off unless his anger continues. That's a Holy Saturday emotion. He's dead. We don't know yet that he's going to be resurrected on Saturday. You can use your imagination to feel what it would be like to be there on Saturday. You don't know, right, what's about to happen. So you're sitting there going, I know that the Lord reigns, but he's dead. It's over. Now, Christians uh, historically have thought what Jesus is doing on Saturday is he's going to hell. Which might surprise some of us, maybe, who aren't as familiar with church history or other um, kind of traditions in the church. Um, the Apostles' Creed says after Jesus died, he descended into hell. One of the most famous pictures, icons for the early church of Jesus' resurrection is awesome. It's Jesus, okay, and he is coming out of this stormy, gray, nasty, fiery pit. And there are gates that have been burst open. And he's got a necklace around his neck with keys on it. And in one hand, he's got Adam. And in the other hand, he's got Eve. And he's rising up out of hell. He's gone down and broken the gates of hell, taken the keys from Satan, and is rising up with his people. He goes and defeats them. He's not in hell for punishment, the early Christians said. He's in hell to take back what is his. Death was not his idea. Death was not his original plan. And he has now defeated it on Saturday. And the proof of the defeat is when he comes up and the tomb is rolled off. And he's come through on the other side of the grave, which is Easter Sunday. Every, every Sunday is kind of like a mini Easter, right? It's the one week anniversary of when our Lord raised. And he's still alive, right? He's on the loose. He's slippery. Right now, today, there's not a funeral service. He's there. He's out there. He's doing stuff. Which we'll celebrate next week. The question maybe you might have been asked by students a lot, you know, was Adam saved? Was Eve saved? This was far before the time where we had, you know, repentance and ask Jesus in your heart and those kind of things. The early church fathers, though, so Cyril, the guy I did my thesis on, he would say, if Adam's not saved, nobody's saved. Jesus came to undo Adam's stuff. The first person that was saved was Adam. Adam falls into sin, and Jesus goes to the cross and goes and grabs Adam and rips him up out of Satan's power. He says, these are my people. I'll deal with them. Some resurrected to life. Some resurrected to judgment. But you have no say in this. You have no say in this. On the Easter Sunday, you have this Holy Week. And, and the goal for Holy Week is for you and I to, again, reflect every day. So, so on Monday, we reflect what it was like for Jesus to be at the temple 
what he was saying had gone wrong at the temple, what, what the people were thinking and feeling as Jesus did these actions at the temple. On Tuesday, we, we, we reflect on the controversies that Jesus was involved in, on the teachings that he gave, maybe that we've missed or that we can still learn from. On Wednesday, we think about Judas. And we think about the fact that maybe some of us know that feeling, know what it's like to betray Jesus, to fall short of what we know we should do. And on Thursday, we remember the Last Supper. And on Friday, we remember the crucifixion. And on Saturday, we sit in silence. And we wait. Now, there's actually, in the Eastern Orthodox Church, they have a service on Saturday called the Harrowing of Hell service, uh, where it's real late at night, and they turn off all the lights, and they kind of like recreate hell, and they bring it in, and it's released, and it's awesome, okay? All the scripts I've had about it. And so for the past couple of years, I've wanted to go to one, and just... I've messed up every year, and so this year I finally have figured out. And so I'm going to be going to hell on Saturday. If any of you want to come, you're more than welcome to come with me, okay? Um, it's an Eastern Orthodox thing. It's going to be kind of probably real different from a church service you've been to late at night, Saturday, okay? It'll be pitch black. It'll be kind of scary, okay? And it's going to be this, like, glorious, you walk out in the dawn, and the, the gates of hell have been opened up, and God's people walk out with Christ leading them. And this is awesome kind of thing. Let me also encourage you. Uh, we have the Good Friday service at, at FC Cube. Let me encourage you, though, to go to Monday, Thursday service as well. Okay? There are lots of churches in the area that do Monday, Thursday services. If you want help in locating one, uh, you can give me an email or call, and I'll help you do that. Um, I think you'll be benefited by trying to, to work through Holy Week and each day remembering and thinking about what was happening. Again, for Christians, this is the week that changed everything. It doesn't get bigger than this week. It doesn't get bigger than this ride into Jerusalem, than this conflict at the temple, than these controversies, than this betrayal, than this garden and cross and, and tomb. This is what it's all about. And so we take a week and we dig in as deep as we possibly can. Uh, if you're on Twitter or Facebook, if you'll be uh, looking out throughout the week in the morning, uh, we'll be putting out stuff to help you kind of reflect on Holy Week, okay, for each, things, each of the days that are happening. And so you can um, follow along. Uh, on social media if you'd like to do that. So you've got a Holy Week here uh, coming up, started, and I think Lamentations is a great way for us to start Holy Week because Lamentations ends with a question. It is unanswered, the book is. There's hope throughout the book. There's, there's this kind of longing that God will be true. And then it ends with almost this doubtful phrase. It ends with a dot, dot, dot. Unless you don't save us unless you don't restore us, unless you don't come back to us. As Christians, though, we know the story, right? We know that verse 21, restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored, happens. God comes through. He shows up. God answers the prayers of lamentations. He answers the prayers of us. He answers the prayers of the world, creation in general. And how does he do it? He does it by riding into Jerusalem. He does it by flipping a table of the temple. He does it by dying on a cross. He does it in this time we call Holy Week. There's all these hints through Lamentations that point to Christ. And as Christians have read through Lamentations, they've constantly been um, brought back and back to think about Christ and think about what he's done on their behalf. Let me show you just a couple. Flip to Lamentations 3 with me. Lamentations chapter 3, we'll pick it up in verse 55. So one of the ways Christians have seen Christ in Lamentations is they've seen Christ's suffering and his death as representative of Jerusalem's suffering in chapters 1 through 2. Just as Jerusalem has suffered, just as all of creation has suffered, just as you and I have suffered, 
So Jesus suffered with us and for us. And then in chapter 3, the strong man is talking. He says in verse 35, I called on your name, Yahweh, O Lord, from the depths of the pit. You heard my plea. Do not close your ear to my cry for help. Christians read this and they see a pointer toward Jesus who goes into the pit, who goes into the grave, yet is heard by the Father and raised up out of the grave into life. Lamentations 4, verse 13. Another text that Christians say, this points to Christ. Can't but point to Christ. In Lamentations 4, the narrator is saying why all the destruction happened. He says, this was for the sins of our prophets and the iniquities of our priests who shed in the midst of her the blood of the righteous. The righteous blood has been shed. Matthew actually quotes this verse when talking about Jesus' death. The righteous blood that's been shed, Jesus' blood. The one righteous one on our behalf for our salvation. If you look in Lamentations 4.20, this is probably the most popular verse in Lamentations that people see pointing toward Christ. If you were to take all the early church writings, like the first 500 years, and, and count up all the times they quoted Lamentations, like 98% of them would be verse 20 here of Lamentations 4. Uh, the breath of our nostrils, Yahweh's anointed, which is the Christ, the King, the anointed one. Yahweh's anointed, his breath it was captured in their pits, of whom we said, under his shadow, we shall live among the nations. The King was captured. He was put in the pit. All our, all our trust was in him. I mean, you can see the two disciples on the road to Emmaus saying this. Like, yeah, we had thought he was the one to free us. But he died. He was crucified. And remember, Jesus is walking there with them. He's saying, well, maybe it just worked out a different way than you were, you were planning. Lamentations, it, it points us to Christ. It points us to his suffering. It points us to his work. It's, it points us to um, our ability to, to put ourselves in the Holy Week and see God's response to the suffering and pain of the world. Um, chapter 5, again, remember, look, what's happened. You hear Christ cry on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then this, this line in verse 21, okay, I've I, I kind of focused in on this throughout the weeks I've been studying. He says, restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. So there's this two-way direction that needs to happen. God needs to come back to us and we need to come to God. There's this sense that the Israelites want to make a scene so that God will will come, will we'll repent. There's this connotation of repentance here. Change your mind, change your actions. And they say, if you would come to us, then we can come to you. And our, our relationship can be restored again. And as Christians, this is what we believe has happened in Holy Week. God has restored us to himself so that we can be restored to him. So that we can repent, that we can live, that we can have this life. The crucifixion and death of Jesus, in one sense... Uh, and the resurrection, in one sense, is the vindication of Jesus. It's, it's the Father saying, he really was the king. He really was the one who was going to free my people from sin, death, and Satan. There's another sense, though, um, that a theologian I was reading this week really brought out well, a guy named uh, Lewis, Alan Lewis, that the resurrection is also, in a sense, the vindication of the Father. It reveals that the Father is loving, that the Father is committed to life. The father, in a sense, is convicted when Jesus dies. This was the son he loved perfectly. This was the righteous one. And the father's not okay with him being dead. And so he says, rise. All throughout the scriptures, when you see Jesus' resurrection being mentioned, it's in the active voice with the father acting. Jesus doesn't raise himself, technically, biblically speaking. The father raises Jesus. 
the father looks at the son representing Israel, representing the world. And he says, that's unacceptable to me. So rise up. This prayer that is hanging off in the balance in Lamentations 5, you see answered. And God restores himself to us and we're restored to the Lord. So Holy Week is here. Lent is over. We've done our lamenting. And I think we're ready to celebrate. Easter Resurrection Sunday in one week. Let me encourage you this week to dig into Holy Week. To try to experience and participate and remember this week that changed the world. Again, let me encourage you to, to go to services if you can. A Monday, Thursday service. Or a Good Friday service. Perhaps if you're, you're willing, you can come to hell with me on Saturday, okay? Let me encourage you this too. One last spiritual practice you might want to do this week. I'm planning on doing. Um, is, is praying verse 21 every morning. So as I think about Christ entering into Jerusalem, I want to pray, restore, restore me to you, Lord, so I can be restored. And as I think about Christ at the temple, I want to say, restore me to you, so that I might be restored. And on Spy Wednesday and Monday, Thursday and Good Friday and Holy Saturday and Easter Sunday, restore us, restore us. Lamentations ends on this kind of ellipsis. It's dot, dot, dot. And next week we get to hear the answer. Who wants to hear the answer? We'll hear it. All right, let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your love for us. I pray that you...